Hello, it's Julie Bindle, and this week I'm speaking with Kathleen Richardson. Now, Kathleen is an academic, and she did her PhD studies on the anthropology of robots. In 2015, she launched the campaign against porn robots to draw attention to problematic effects of new technologies on human relations and their potential impact to create new layers of inequalities between women and men, children and adults. And she's developing a theory of robotics inspired by anti-slavery abolitionists and second wave feminists. I think we have to recognise that people are trying to normalise this. At the moment, there is nothing to stop a man buying a porn doll, uh, putting it in his car, taking it to work, and what soon will be like, soon we'll have legislation that you've got to respect the porn doll. If he says it's his wife, you know, and it seems far-fetched, but as we all know with what's going on in the world around uh, sex and gender, far-fetched things can take on a life of their own. Now, I use the term sex robots, which is common parlance. But at the end of our conversation, Kathleen asked me why I use that term when she uses porn robots, which is absolutely right. This is part of porn culture, and it's about a pornified view that some men have of women, which is why we have the creation of these robots. Have a listen. I think with this topic of sex robots, as they are called, people see it as a bit of a laugh. People think it's funny, don't they? And presumably you get asked by people, what on earth are you studying? What are you writing about? What are you teaching? Tell me about your work and how you got involved in this area of well, I mean, it's study, but it's also, I think, applied, isn't it? Because you're wanting to to develop policy on this kind of thing. Yeah, so I'm a social anthropologist. And um, when I was doing my PhD, I, I was very interested in robots. And the reason why I was interested in robots is because I was interested in the relationship between people and objects and, like, um, how human beings anthropomorphize objects. And um, the robot, if you like, is a perfect object to explore because it's it's an object, isn't it? But it's given kind of anthropomorphic and human-like qualities. And um, I kind of, you know, growing up in the 70s, I had these ideas of robots like doing our housework and um, all the boring stuff that human beings didn't want to do. And so when I went to labs to study the making of robots, um, I found that they weren't making robots to do people's housework. They were making them to be people's companions. And that really struck me as something quite radically different. And I thought, why would an object become a human companion, right? And so that's really where I um, began developing my research around, well, why are we living in a culture where scientists or technologists believe that they can do things to objects to make them like people and so that led me on a journey to look at uh, their uses as therapeutic tools for children with autism and that led me on a, to looking at attachment how we create human attachment looking at trauma looking at relationship 
So the themes of my research are about human relationship and what happens when things don't go right in human relationship. Um, and, and so that led me to, in fact, start to make strong objections to the idea that objects um, could ever replace human beings. And that that's a, a stream through my work. And then uh, it's a long story. So what I came across were these objects in the form of women. And I just thought, right, well, I keep observing these, these developments. So what, firstly, it was about aging populations. You know, let's give uh, poor, lonely, aging uh, individuals an object with a face on. And like, 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 let's claim that that's going to be good for those individuals. And then it was, well, let's do it for children with autism or adults with Alzheimer's. And then the kind of popularity of them being objects for men, sex robots came along. And I just thought, right, this is the moment to make an intervention. And at that point, I created the campaign against sex robots, which was on the back of a paper I'd written. You citing some of your work, in fact. Thank you for that. I'm very flattered. And tell me a little bit, first of all, about the objects, the robots, whatever you would call them, for autistic children. Because I don't think that very many people understand what we're talking about when we look at how humans are being replaced by machines. And then, of course, um, I want to speak more thoroughly about the issue of sex replacement or whatever it's called. So when when roboticists are coming up with a set of ideas for their objects, they've got to have a rationale. They've got to find some, if you like, they've got to find some literature that they can refer to that can justify the use of machines for, um, for different populations. So I became very interested in the work of Simon Baron Cohen. I don't know if you've probably come across it. Very yeah. sexy stuff. You know, men are systematizing and women are empathizing. And so his arguments inside that literature is that this accounts for autism is like the extreme male brain. It's like an asocial extreme male brain and very, very problematic, but very popular. These kind of ideas about um, sexist sex role stereotypes in the sciences is, is very influenced by his kind of thinking. And when I was in the uh, robotics labs, uh, I came across the development of a robot. And um, what they were doing is they were saying, like, we're going to create, they were started to make analogies between these machines and people with autism by saying, right, well, a, a person with autism doesn't have social awareness. Our machine doesn't have social awareness. Um, our machine doesn't have a sense of what other people are thinking and feeling. So they're, they're not, they don't have, um, it's called mind blindness. You know, they can't recognize what other, the intentions of other people. And I thought that was really interesting how they were starting to make these analogies between the machines that they were creating. And kind of, if you like, say, we, we can think about our machines like we think about people with autism. And so from there, I did research around the development of, of the ideas that inform the development of robots for people with autism, but also the claims made by people in that in that field who say there's a certain type of personality that is most suited to studying science and technology. And this this 
suited personalities, typically male. In fact, Simon Baron Cohen's actually written papers about um, why men are better suited to be mathematicians and and other such things. Um, yeah, and and I looked at them in relation to children and whether they could therapeutically help children. So this is the theory, right? So children have difficulty with social interaction and they struggle understanding people. So therefore what we'll do is we'll put a robot in front of them, which has a simpler, simpler range of physical behaviors. And then hopefully we can use that uh, device as a way to get the children to think about social behaviors absolutely balmy and ridiculous and illogical never heard anything as mad yeah no but millions have gone into funding these ideas unfortunately millions well become, i'm one of the very few people who've taken issue with first of all the kind of dehumanization of of any group not just people with autism but anyone with like different different abilities and conditions you know it does matter how we talk about them but the, the sexist stereotypes that underpin them, but also this idea of ob objects are better for people with autism than other people are, right? Yeah. So that mindset that these objects can actually not only replace humans, but can somehow um, make a difference to the lives of the most vulnerable has somehow been twisted and subverted into a well men need sex men need need more sex than do women men want more sex than do women so therefore let's create an object that gives them sexual satisfaction this is exactly the same mindset that normalizes and justifies prostitution and the use of pornography per se isn't it it's the, the idea that men somehow lack empathy and therefore our structures just naturally reflect this kind of, um, I'm, I'm not saying that men lack empathy. I'm saying that if you look at autism studies, they'll say that um, men are more likely to lack empathy than women. And they're more likely to be less interested in other people and in social relationships than women. And it's that literature that these roboticists were drawing on. And what's interesting is they had to draw on that kind of literature because um, the actual more humanistic literature around autism just wouldn't, you couldn't transfer it, right? So if you think of someone with autism as, as a different, um, has some difficulties in social interaction and they develop a number of strategies to kind of cope with those difficulties that are quite innovative, right? That, you know, they, um, uh, so how they might look after themselves in certain kind of situations by wanting to be in environments where there's less less noise and less disruption. All that is kind of subverted through these uh, through these attempts to justify the millions that are invested in these technologies, really. I think it's the technology that's driving this. It's not really an interest in people with autism. Because as part of my research, I interviewed lots of parents of children with autism. And in the UK, for example, what you're entitled to as a parent is something like a six, six speech and language therapy sessions. I mean, that is ridiculous. Um, so the, the drive for it came from technology. It didn't come out of parents' demands 
uh, what they want are speech and language therapy, you know, better sensory environments uh, um, for their children, I would say. But let me caveat this because my definition of a robot, I think, differs from a lot of other people, right? So um, Carol, Carol Chapak, a playwright, invented the robot, and uh, it's taken from the term robota, which means extra labor. So there's something about robota in terms of you're just using people for their labor. That's the kind of original idea. And when you use people just for their labor, you know, you're not you're not interested in their other characteristics. You're not interested whether they're poetic or emotional or, you know, they have vulnerabilities. Um, scientists say what uh, robots are, are they kind of mechanically engineered uh, objects that embed artificial intelligence, which artificial intelligence for them is like some extraordinary technical achievements which enables them to mimic if you like or carry out functions that a human being might like um, pattern recognition or uh, 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 language language processing machines don't do any of these things by the way my definition of a robot is an image printed on a surface so what why I call them porn robots and not sex robots, it's a pornographic image printed on a service, surface that is elaborated in different ways. So these objects that they were given to the children was an image of sometimes a child, sometimes a, a magical creature printed on a surface. And then claims were made about that image print, if you like, and it's... Um, the way it was elaborated, that far extended beyond its actual capacities as an object. Right. So how then have we got to a situation where there seems to be a widespread acceptance that men need sex and that something terrible will happen to, as one punter, one regular sex buyer said to me once, that if they don't get the sex they want with whom they want, that they will go out and rape a real woman. That That's where we are now, isn't it? That it's almost like a, a rape prevention strategy. I, th I think there are a number of things going on at the same time. Uh, and, and they're all kind of, they get a bit jumbled up together. So you had the porn dolls being developed called sex dolls and men involved in the niche markets around them, like fetish objects. And then on the other hand, you had the robotics community reinventing if you like new ways of understanding their objects making claims about them that they were going to become super intelligent and what seemed to happen around the the middle of the 2000s is these two ideas converged together so now these these porn dolls were going to be um elaborated with all this technology which would make the would put more porn in them basically so you can have porn speech you could have porn movement you could have all these objects elaborated and then these uh doll companies started to if you like seize on some of these companion narratives developed in respectable labs and then from there you had this i mean come on in a way if it was at the level of porn dolls, everybody kind of looked at porn dolls and went, you know, that is pornography. You can tell that's pornography and I, I'm not gonna buy into that. But once these 
companies, these porn companies said, right, it's not a porn doll anymore. It's a sex robot. It's a robot. It kind of adds a level of excitement that didn't exist before. And then it can kind of tap into all these other imaginaries that exist around robots that do not actually exist around dolls. Um, and so most of the objects that are passed off as robots are actually dolls because it's very difficult to develop a robot that can behave like human beings. Well, they'll never develop a robot that can behave like a human being, but they, they can't even develop a robot that can mimic basic functions of a human being. Um, but you don't need to be able to produce that to get people excited about the idea of a robot because the robot imaginary exists outside of, of these labs in America and it exists outside the porn industry. And how much influence do you think this technology has on the way that men express their misogyny and how misogyny can be normalised in the way that we've seen it happen through the sex industry forever? Well, I think that's uh, crucial. So uh, one of the one of the terms I've coined in, in my forthcoming book and some of my work is a representational technology of the human. And when we develop these representational technologies, when they're representational technologies of women and girls, they're primarily pornographic, right? Um, either they're, they're subservient, like um, assistants, or um, uh, or they're pornographic. They use their purposes for pornographic uses. So uh, Genevieve Clark's done some interesting work on deep fakes, for example, and she, you know, she makes the point that over ninety percent of deep fakes are pornographic. So either women's uh, images being used in pornography or um, or different kinds of manipulations going on there. But all the focus in public society, in mainstream culture, is on the very small percentage that are, are representing political figures like Barack Obama and so on. So that just goes to show that every new technology that's now coming in that has a representational aspect is, if it's of women and girls, it's primarily pornographic. I would say all the represent, I would say 90% of all the representational technologies that represent women and girls are pornographic. So deep fakes, uh, VR porn, um, porn robots, sex dolls, call them sex robots if you like. Um, these are all pornographic, even avatars, you know, even avatar characterizations that are used inside video games are often pornographic representations of women and girls. Why is this then seen as an issue that rather than being part of the sex industry, that is somehow almost like Meals on Wheels, like a social service for men? How, how did that narrative form? Um, I, I'm very inspired by the work of Catherine McKinnon and Andrea Dworkin. When they uh, began to, if you like, challenge pornography, um, back in the 80s, I think it was the 80s, 70s and 80s, and um, before it became the free speech. So the idea that in pornography, because something is represented um, in an object, i.e. A, view, a viewer receives 
the pornography via via a video recording or via an image, or it can be via um, you know a digital representation. But the point they make is that under underscoring that there's got to be um, someone to write about. There must be some event that's happened um, that has occurred in time and space for the writing of to eventually take place from. So they, uh, Andrea Dworkin says, um, pornography is from two words, porno, uh, graphis, graphos mean writing and porn, which was the term for um, a brothel, uh, a brothel slut. This is her language. Um, and the prostituted woman is, has to be abused in time and space for its representations to occur. So I would say what's underscoring all the technology is the actual abuse of women and girls at a very direct and proximate level. And so all that's happening in these technologies, the very fact that they're now becoming the, the central narratives, tell us that's going on all the time. And it's going on in commercial industries. We know with the prostitution trade and the pornography trade, it's going on. There's now big business in child abuse and, um, you know, the kind of rehabilitation of child abuse um, as minor attracted persons or virtuous pedophiles or other kinds of um, terms that are developing. And so, and then there's civil life, isn't it? Because in civil life, you've got someone in front of you who you can abuse and then you can create a kind of representation of that, i.e. you can write about it, you can video record it, you can drug someone and rape them while they're, while they're um, drugged, and then you can share that video on social media. So I would say the fact that these exist tell us that underscoring this, there is mass abuse of women taking place, mass abuse of women and, and girls taking place. And I know abuse also happens to men and boys, uh, as we know from some recent cases, but the very fact that they, that we're having all these representations in our technologies tell us that um, that this well tells us that it's going on, and it tells us that it's happening on a mass scale. So, in short, why is the existence of sex robots harmful? And to whom? So the, the existence of them tell them tell us that someone's been abused. Someone in real life has been abused because if they weren't abused, there'd be no representation of it to then display. So when we're talking, uh, if if a, uh, and I keep calling them porn robots. I know you're calling them sex robots, but I I see them as forms of pornography. So the, for pornography to exist, someone's got to be abused, i.e. and who are being abused, women and girls are being abused, they're being raped in commercial uh, industries or in civil life. So a variety of different places, um, some of it sanctioned by the state, some of it illegal. And then it's written about in our objects, in our technologies. I, I think that's the order of things because I think there's this emphasis like somehow everything was fine in the world until these objects appeared and now the world is going to become a sick place. Whereas I'm saying the world is, you know, this abuse is taking place and these objects appear 
as a as a marker that it's taking place right so the abuse let's imagine that these the reason why i think it's so important to recognize them as forms of pornography is because people want to normalize them in our everyday lives uh there, there's videos of men who like uh use these porn um objects porn dolls in their bedroom and then bring them down to the kitchen table and like have breakfast with the doll present their children present in the same at the same breakfast table and then they put the the pornography in their car and they take it on the school run so what we're really seeing is the kind of the normalization of pornography in every everyday life through these objects and that's why those people are very keen to kind of to kind of promote this narrative that they're that the users of them are just lonely men who may be on the autism spectrum looking for a bit of companionship rather than the dark story really that underpins them and underpins those men who use them describe a sex doll for us be as graphic as necessary i think people need to know what it is we're talking about because it all seems a bit of a laugh they've been featured in hollywood mainstream films um and actually the reality because i was in a factory in cambodia and saw them being made back in 2015 the reality is pretty grotesque isn't it 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 certainly is um so i mean people you know british culture tongue-in-cheek kind of humor so sex dolls used to be kind of jokey blow up plastic dolls um nobody really took them seriously i mean if someone came out and said they're in love with a plastic doll you know you're just all have a good old laugh uh but then what happened were companies started developing more uh like silicon rubber they're, they're kind of weightier you know they probably weigh the, the same weight as a as a an 18 year old girl so they've got that uh weight about them they've got orifices you can customize them so you can choose on what kind of eye color you want or what kind of hair color or what kind of shape of bosom shape of waist within customizable um uh, uh limits and and then because of the internet, the men who consume these products then grew into communities where they shared their fetish with each other. And actually, um, in a book that we've got coming out, um, one of our authors talks about, you know, these communities are very important in order for men to share their pornography and what they're doing with these dolls with each other. Now, again, all that was pretty niche. It was pretty on the margins. No one really uh cared about it but as soon as those companies started saying these are robots you know in our culture a robot is a very it has a very complex imaginary in so many different ways so people then started to think oh right then this doll could become more lifelike um you know some people really believe and i've spoken to people believe that eventually we're going to be uh seeing these these objects like walking around among us talking and being almost indistinguishable from other people. They do look very lifelike, but human beings, like human beings can identify people on the basis of their sex, human beings can also identify whether something is alive or not, <laughs> which is quite a useful skill really, isn't it? <laughs> it's kind of built into our uh, conceptual apparatus. So 
I mean, they they pass off all these objects as being so lifelike that we wouldn't be able to notice the difference. But um, they would have to triumph over kind of millions of years of uh, evolution in order to do that. But that doesn't matter. I mean, whether they do this or not is actually irrelevant because as it currently stands, it doesn't matter what they can and can't do as objects. The academic community who are also pro-porn and pro-prostitution, right? And introducing terms like maps into our academic journals, they're very keen on them becoming very normalized. Tell me about, tell me the, what MAP acronym stands for. Minor Attracted Person. If that isn't whitewashing, I mean, it's the, it's the, it's the worst whitewashing I have heard since sex work. Yeah, well, this is ethics washing. There's actually a term for it. This is when you take something which is actually very harmful and um, is, is very problematic, but you dress it up in these new sanitized terms. And then what you do is you kind of um, reverse the victim offender. <laughs> so our, our sympathies with this literature should not be with the children who are uh, who are developmentally and brutally impacted by child abuse, but by the adults who who derive who feel they're being excluded from achieving their sexual pleasure and orgasms through using children and and the law, you know, the poor law is is against them because it's not legal to go and rape children. So let's give them approximations of children instead. I mean, that's basically what they're saying. Let's give approximated abuse objects of, in the form of children to paedophiles. And they're actually justifying this ethically. They're saying this is an ethical good. In fact, the reason for saying that we don't do it and why we're not, we're not normalizing it is just moral disgust. There's very little literature in some of these articles on child protection, on child development, on the survivor testimonies you know, that are so important. I think what I really like about your work and I think is so valuable about the, the radical feminist movement as it incorporates the lived experiences of women and uh, into its analysis, right? So once you start incorporating the lived experience, i.e. the vulnerabilities, the bruises, the, uh, the, you know, the discomfort, the trauma, when that becomes part of your analysis, you, you have a different kind of analysis. When you exclude that, you have this very clinical, almost um, over cognitive approach to an issue, X, Y, Z. And that's what's going on in the ethics industry. The ethics, ethics washing by these pornographers, um, you know, sex buyers. I wouldn't call them sex buyers. I would just call them pain rapists. <laughs> and the notion that feeding the fantasies of these men is harmless doesn't actually keep their fetish or their desire to harm to rape to abuse doesn't keep that alive is ridiculous it would be like saying that advertising has no effect or on a, a hot day seeing an advert for an ice cold diet coke never actually leads someone to go and buy a diet coke that they, they have this idea that men cannot stop themselves, that they have no control over their sexual urges and desires, and that if we don't feed them, either through women in brothels, 
or through the lowest form of life that they consider to walk the earth. In other words, the abused children and the indigenous women and the black women and girls that they will go out and harm women that actually might be their wives or mothers. It's the worst attitude to, yeah. to particularly vulnerable women and girls. And they think that they've somehow solved the problem by giving them inanimate objects. When what it's doing is giving them permission to want to have, to rape children. Now, I don't, I don't know how you feel about this. I don't believe in the medical diagnosis of paedophilia. I don't believe it's a medical diagnosis. I think that men like Jimmy Savile, who rape children, also rape adult women, adult men, corpses, whatever. And I don't think that there's such a person called a paedophile that's different from any other man that chooses to rape and harm vulnerable children, women or men. So, so they're, they're almost medicalising. Well, in fact, they are medicalising uh, a crime and harmful behaviour. And these sex dolls and the whole idea that if you watch animated uh, versions of children being raped to, for sexual stimulation, the, the idea that that's harmless is bonkers to me. Yeah, it's, it's, um, it's almost as bonkers as the idea that a human, a, a woman can compartmentalise her subjectivity when a man is paying to abuse her in a brothel and somehow she can somehow separate herself, i.e. something internal to herself from what's actually going on in the moment. I mean, she can do her best and we know that the courageous stories of women who try to survive these situations and how they do it. But I think the long-term effects are, are very detrimental to women, their mental health, their social relationships. Um, so yeah, it's, well, first of all, let's look at a minor attracted person. Like you're a lesbian, I'm a lesbian. I know you're a lesbian. Who told you I was a lesbian? I know, I just- I, I thought that was a secret. Um, but you know, that's, when when you're coming to terms even as a heterosexual with your sexuality you know it's your identity that's forming around it is a long drawn out process isn't it so we're we're actually saying that there are people now with child abuse identities that's really what people are saying that they've got identities now how do you create an identity you don't wake up one morning and go oh i just want to abuse a child and i need an object you've got to be thinking about it You've got to be exploring what it means. You've got to be reading around the literature. You might starting to be talking to this new community of academics that want to normalize it. So now you're getting confirmation that there's nothing harmful with what you're doing. In fact, you're just a poor victim. So all that's going on, that's reinforced. So anyone who calls themselves a minor attracted person has now gone through a process of identification with the idea of being a child abuser. So that's one of the problems. And then um, we don't know, right, whether, uh, I mean, we can only go, most people don't disclose whether they've abused children, do they? It's only when they've been caught do we know that they've abused children. Um, and in the cases where all the men found with these objects in the form of children, uh, they all had child abuse imagery, like ex child abuse imagery on hard drives. So this idea that somehow they were buying these objects and making them, using them independently of the other paraphernalia around rape of children, including some real children, is 
you know, is laughable. It's not even like, no, laughable is the wrong word. It's disgraceful. Yes. Um, but the, I guess the third thing is we, we have, by medicalizing it, and I think you're absolutely right, because the, the, the kind of queer community want to demedicalize it because they want to reframe it as a sexuality as well like homosexuality and bisexuality. Um, and they often point to the uh, criminalization of homosexuality as the template for how they might go about the process of decriminalizing child sex abuse. Yes. So this is their first step. What we'll do is we'll rebrand it. We'll rebrand child abuse. And if they can rebrand child abuse, they can rebrand anything. And actually, if we look now back to the 1970s, that shameful period where Liberty, which was then the National Council of, 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 of Liberties, um, supported the paedophile information exchange. It was happening then during the rise of the gay liberation movement. Men like Tom O'Carroll, who was a very vocal member of PI, was talking about being a marginalised community mm. and they were seen almost as sexual outlaws. In fact, Geoffrey Weeks, the writer Geoffrey Weeks, the Foucauldian, saw Pi as warriors. And it's quite incredible that we've had 50 years in between the two scandals we had Pi being accepted by Liberty. And now we've got the same kind of story, but being accepted and embraced and rewritten within the Academy. Yeah. <clears throat> and all, it, within that 50 years, within that half century, we've had countless feminists doing unpaid work to expose child abuse for what it is to stop child abuse and to get justice for the perpetrators and for the victims. Where the hell are we now? Yeah, well, I, th I think this comes back to the technology in a way, because basically um, the internet is a place where you can hide your crimes, where you can join up with other people who want to commit crime. And actually it's generated certain countries um, have become places like Thailand, where there's basically a global industry in, in rape and um, torture of, of children. And we know it's going on and the appetite for intervening, regulating, restricting this kind of, it's just not there. And that's, you know, what is there is putting more money into technology and protecting the rights normally of adult men, but also women are, are like often pioneering some of these ideas because it's better if it's better if sometimes these argument comes out of the mouth of a woman than a man to be honest <laughs> i think that's how they look at it it's better it's better publicity i'm getting increasingly tired of these sticking plaster faux solutions they're not even solutions they don't work that's coming out of this new wave of conservative feminism. It's not really feminism, it's conservatism dressed up as feminism. It's feminism in the sense that these women that are promoting them back to the 1950s uh, nonsense 
you know, are dead against the sex trade, the porn industry, because they can see it's really harmful. But their solution is find a nice man, marry him and stay married to him. Or if a man's a dangerous child abuser, give him a sex doll that he can take his frustrations out on. These are not solutions. Feminism and campaigning to end the male sex right is the solution. So what's the way forward for you in your work, Kathleen? What are you working on next and where can we expect to see your work going? Which direction are we going in here? Well, I think one of the things I'd like to do is get these uh, objects recognised as pornography because then the people, um, by calling them sex, I mean, people associate a lot of things with sex. Uh, I think when we think about sex, it can kind of go either way. It can kind of be enjoyable or it can be harmless or it can be a brutal. Whereas when we think about pornography, we kind of do know what we're talking about. We're talking about something very dehumanizing, uh, degrading towards w women and girls. Um, and I think the people who are proposing that these objects be used in these therapeutic ways or in wider culture to help lonely men, I think if, if we can get them to stop thinking of, like basically challenge these narratives around them that they're helpful and that they're not harmful to women by, I think, recognizing that they are pornography and that actually what you're doing is you're saying, right, men's view of women as pornography is now the norm. So if, so that's the norm now. If your women are measured not in terms of their humanity and their subjectivity or their, uh, their aspirations, but in terms of how they approximate to pornography. And if a man in the world can't get his version of pornography in the form of a, of a woman, then he can buy a version of it in an object and uh, he can use it alongside all his videos that he's created. He can produce pornography himself. He can conscript. And this is what's actually happening. What's happening now that in, there are some brothels that have um, women in and some of them have these porn objects. So men are going in, right? And going, oh, I think I'll have, have the doll. Um, so then you've got this situation where you've already got these, like <clears throat> a degraded situation, right? And now you're having to compete with a doll among your, in terms of competition for your income, so to speak, in these brothels. So you're being a light, you know, you're being, being put on show alongside objects. And I think we have to recognize that people are trying to normalize this. At the moment, there is nothing to stop a man buying a porn doll, uh, putting it in his car, taking it to work. And what soon will be like, soon we'll have legislation that you've got to respect the porn doll. Uh, if he says it's his, if he says it's his wife, you know, some people are trying to change legislation so you can marry these objects. I mean, this is really going on and it seems far fetched. But as we all know, with what's going on in the world around uh, sex and gender, far fetched things can take on a life of their own, particularly in a culture um, where people are very. People are spending more time online, less time, I guess, in face to face politics. So I think that's the first thing. 
they are pornography. I want to convince people. I know not, not everyone agrees with me and that's all right, but I want to use my work to say why they're pornography. The other thing I want to do is discredit this idea that you can create objects like people, right? You can't. Uh, but the whole kind of AI and robotics industry and the digital culture industry is premised on the idea that you can or that people won't care. Um, and the third thing I think we can do is to bring, bring into the analysis, right, the survivor perspective, to always situate it as part of the analysis because it's very hard, right? So the analysis of child abuse, right, comes, comes not from my perspective as an adult, but it comes from my understanding of childhood and of survivor testimonies of what, of knowing women who were abused as children and what it did to them and how it, it destroyed their lives and how they had to spend the rest of their life trying to recover from events in their childhood. It's not because I intellectualize it and I've made some arbitrary distinction between adults and children. There is absolutely overwhelming literature on the harms of child abuse. And it seems we're discounting those. None of these studies, for example, were recognized in some of the articles that promote minor attracted people, by the way, they're excluded. Only the narratives that conform to their ideas are included. So we've always got to have the survivor perspective embedded in the kind of analysis. And, we've, and that will make it human, right? And that will make it, uh, that will draw, that is necessary because otherwise you can have these clinical ethical paradigms that actually are going to be very harmful to women and children. And the idea that women are competing against sex dolls these objects in brothels is something that unless unless those listening to this have ever spoken in detail to a survivor of prostitution as you have as i have they cannot understand the grave insult at being both treated as an object without a beating heart as they are by punters and pimps. And then to have an actual object as competition. Nothing is, there's no stronger message that you are worthless, you don't have a beating heart, I can do what I want to you, than actually having a sex doll side by side for the John, the punter, the, the rapist to choose. And also in order to earn extra income from pornography, you know, uh, women in pornography, you can have a bit of extra income if you kind of um, carry out pornographic acts with dolls. You know, there's no drive, is there, from women to have um, pornographic acts with dolls. It's coming from the men who uh, have the money. So the demand is being created now to create these niches of pornography. So now there's a, there's, um, it'd be, you'd be hard pressed to, to find doll porn, for example, 10 years ago or even five years ago, but now it's flourished. And some of it is passed off as robots as well. So that's that's the irony. It's like, um, it's like the imagination for these objects is fueled because of its robotic connotations, which is mainly fictional <laughs> as it happens. Well, I think that's a very good point 
to end on because you're exposing the fiction and imagining a world where we can actually challenge this stuff and stop what's happening. It seems that there's new atrocities every single month to deal with. And thank God you're doing the work that you're doing because I think that many, even feminists that have been working to end male violence would be shocked at how far technology is enabling and encouraging the abuse of women. So thank you for all that you do. Thank you. I don't know about you, but I found that fascinating. And I'm really grateful to Kathleen for doing the work that she's doing on an academic level, but also as a feminist campaigner. And as far as I'm concerned, you can't possibly talk about there being no harm when we're producing machines to further entrench the notion that women are inanimate objects there for men's sexual use and one-sided sexual pleasure.